0: is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arseneau. Today we look at our fourth edition of our History of Series podcasts. In the past, we have chronicled the stories of the Criterion Collection and distributors A24 and Neon. Today we are looking at an animation studio that has steadfastly kept the art of stop-motion animation alive in popular American filmmaking. We are going to do a deep dive on Leica the company that has produced such films like Coraline, Kubo and the Two Strings, and Paranorman, among others. At first glance, you'd assume they're a relatively newish company that has been cranking out some modern animated classics over the last 15 years. Upon a slightly closer look, you probably look at it as some company created by a trust fund baby as the president and CEO of the studio is none other than Travis Knight, the son of Nike founder Phil Knight. It's when you dig even deeper that you realize just how unique and interesting this company is, with its roots dating back to the 1970s. I hope to take you on a ride to discover the fascinating history of Leica. Stop-motion animation has a history almost as rich and as long as cinema itself. Stop-motion animation has a history almost as rich and as long as cinema itself. The very first stop-motion movie produced was 1898's The Humpty Dumpty Circus a short film made using dolls with jointed limbs to simulate the movements of circus acrobats. Unfortunately, this short was lost to the sands of time, and not even a single frame of it exists anymore. The first full-length stop-motion film was 1925's The Lost World, which was an adaptation of an Arthur Conan Doyle story that was about dinosaurs in South America. The brainchild behind this film was Willis O'Brien, who eventually went on to work on such films like the iconic 1933 film King Kong in which the large gorilla interacted with people and climbed the Empire State Building. From there, one of the most famous stop-motion artists was Ray Harryhausen, a protege of Willis O'Brien and who actually worked on King Kong, whose work could be seen in such films like The Clash of the Titans and Jason and the Argonauts. In modern times, we have the works of Ardman Studios, who are the geniuses behind the Wallace and Gromit franchise, along with Shaun the Sheep, Chicken Run, and Pirates, A Band of Misfits. You have indie icons like Wes Anderson, who has directed two stop-motion films in *Fantastic Mr. Fox* and Isle of Dogs*, and the master of depression, Charlie Kaufman, who co-directed *Anomalisa*. There are plenty of other big names for this field, but they show up later in our story, so feel free to bite your tongue until we get to the names you're screaming about in your head. Here come the planes, little well, Can they shoot him and not hit in? Don't get on the road! Come here, I'll be shooting. <laughs> doesn't start with Leica's first movie, Coraline. It doesn't even start with Travis Knight. It actually starts with a man named Will Vinton. William Gale Vinton was born in 1947 in McMinnville, Oregon. He went on to go to school at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studied physics, architecture, and filmmaking. There, he made several documentaries about the anti-war and counterculture movements on college campuses. He then made a short film called Culture Shock, where he combined home movies shot by his father and animation using clay. It ended up winning first prize at the Berkeley Film Festival and set in motion a future career path for Vinton. He graduated in 1970, getting a bachelor's degree in architecture. After toiling away in various formats making films, he teamed up with artist Bob Garner to begin working on a new style of animation that would later become his signature. Together, they made a short film called Closed Mondays, about a drunk man who stumbles around an art gallery, interacting with the installations, thinking they are talking to him. What? What was that guy thinking of? Huh oh, <laughs> uh, what? What? Huh. Huh. made this 8-minute short so unique was that Vinton and Gardner used clay to animate the film, a medium not considered to be a fine art. The process from beginning to end took around 14 months and involved the voice actors shooting a live reference film to assist with the animation process. In 1974, the duo were awarded with a Best Animated Short Oscar for their innovative work. Vinton later claimed that winning an Oscar allowed him the opportunity and freedom to pursue work that previously people weren't interested in seeing or supporting. I'd like to thank uh, family and friends, and, and uh, Will, thank you very much. Thanks to the members of the Academy for the incredible honor, um, and uh, hello and, and thank you to all our friends back home in Oregon. In 1976, Will Vinton trademarked his signature style and coined it Claymation a term now widely used and understood as a style of using stop-motion photography with clay-sculpted imagery. He was able to set up his own company called Wilvinton Productions that was based out of Portland, Oregon. From there, his company produced several short films and commercials, all utilizing its trademark claymation style, each project showing more and better details into what could be achieved. Vinton and his team were nominated for three more Oscars between 1979 and 1983. In 1998, the company now renamed Will Vinton Studios eventually got offered a chance to animate a new Fox production called The PJs that was created by Eddie Murphy and produced by Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. The show, which featured Eddie Murphy's voice, was about the lives of occupants of an inner city housing project. Once upon a time in the project. This massive new project meant a few things needed to change. Firstly, they needed a lot more employees to help animate a weekly show, and they needed an influx of cash. From here, we are introduced to one of the richest families in the world and how Vinton was put on a collision course that changed his and Travis Knight's lives. One of the lawyers for Will Vinton Studios knew Phil Knight, the man who founded Nike, and went on to become worth more than $60 billion and being the upper echelon of the richest of the rich. He was born in Oregon, went to school there, and has headquartered the athletic wear company in the state. He frequently makes donations and investments in local businesses and people that could be viewed either as altruistic or always wanting a piece of the pie, depending on your views on capitalism. It therefore is not shocking that Phil Knight offered $5 million for 16% of Will Vinton Studios, the biggest animation studio based out of Oregon. From here, we go backwards to tell the story of Travis Knight, and we'll reconnect with the aftermath of this investment. Travis Knight is the youngest of two children in the Knight family. He briefly wanted to be a rapper, going by the name Chili T. With a rising interest in hip-hop taking place across America in the early 90s, Travis decided to give it a go. Except, while rap music often takes the form of talking about the difficulties of being black while going against a white-dominated society… Travis was the son of a billionaire who never knew why the streets were so tough for some people. His father built him a state-of-the-art studio, hired the producing team The Bomb Squad, known best for their work with legendary political rap group Public Enemy, and managed to use his connections to get his son a record deal with the major label MCA. What resulted was a single album entitled Get Off Mine, where Travis mostly raps unintentionally and ironically about just wanting to be left alone and do his own thing. The album did include some not-so-subtle product placement and ways of a track entitled Just Do It, Nike's iconic slogan. He eventually graduated from Portland State University in 1998 with a bachelor's degree in social science after his rap career didn't blow up. If you don't through The mission while I'm dissing all the square sex permission for admission. Nobody else compares the details on the females. I got in pairs. I'm dipping why you see get all flipping in my bears. Nice summer feet, kick a seat through the right or the left or the death. Fry, mama kick a slick. You thought that I was wet, money flip, I got a trick. Another name for Richard is Dick. So get off my. So get off my. So get off my. Eventually, Travis needed to find some real work. When Phil Knight made his massive investment into Will Vinton Studios, he had minimal requests. He only asked to receive a monthly financial statement and to give his son an internship. In 1998, after spending some time as a general office production assistant, Travis was assigned to work on facial hair for Eddie Murphy's character, Thurgood Stubbs on the PJs. He kept his head down and worked hard, not even telling his co-workers that Daddy was a minority owner of the company they worked for. The PJs was a painstaking show to work on. Each episode took roughly two months to animate, costing a lot of money and time. But it proved to be a critical hit, winning Emmys and raising the studio's profile immensely. Unfortunately, poor ratings eventually caused Fox to cancel the show after three seasons in 2001. The studio also had another show called Gary and Mike that was broadcast on UPM that was cancelled after one season in the same year. Due to economic struggles... The company was forced to lay off almost 75% of its employees and they had difficulty getting funding for other projects, including plans for several new TV shows. Phil Knight had told the board of Wilvinton Studios that if they were ever in trouble financially, to come to him and he would consider investing more money in the company. He was true to his word and in 2003, he completely paid off debts they owed and injected enough capital, an unknown sum, to have a controlling stake in the animation studio. This is when big changes really kicked in. Formerly a passive investor, Phil Knight named himself chairman and brought in two Nike executives to sit on the board of directors. He also named his son Travis, then just 30 years old and only six years into his career as an animator, to the board as well, giving him a substantial jump to his career. Phil's plan as the new owner was to focus the company's attention on feature films. Previously, the core of Will Vinton Studios was to do advertising and television, But with the renaissance of Disney and emergence of Pixar, it was time for the company to think bigger. Jeff Farnath, a former exec at Disney, thought the company was still losing money and went to Phil Knight again, allowing the shoe dog to keep amassing more control over the studio. Will Vinton believed that Farnath was selling the shares to Knight at a reduced rate, giving him an easier way to take over. What followed was a corporate war that the artistic Vinton was ill-equipped to take on versus Oregon's richest man. Will fought to the best of his ability, but things came to a breaking point where in a tense board meeting, he shouted at Phil Knight that he wanted a senior member change or he wanted to be bought out. His ultimatum was decided for him. Throughout the next year, Howard Slusher, one of the original board members Phil Knight brought in from Nike and a former sports agent with plenty of tough negotiating experience, was asked to handle Vinton's buyout process. Will was offered a few different options as severance. The most lucrative option was two years' salary and $180,000 for his stock. It was an insulting offer, considering in 1998 his stock holdings were worth $10 million. Vinton tried to fight back for fair compensation. He was met with such a devastating response that he knew he wasn't fighting a normal battle. Vinton was told that if he didn't accept a severance package, Phil Knight would plunge his studio into bankruptcy, making his shares worthless and his life's work all for naught. Will Vinton resigned from the board, and Knight and the company announced another round of layoffs, which included Vinton himself being officially let go from the studio he founded 28 years earlier. Vinton refused to sign a non-compete release, so all he walked away with was $50,000 that was already owed to him in stocks he refused to sell back. In the years following Vinton's departure, Phil Knight did what any parent would do for their children. He set Travis up for all the success in the world, in a way only a billionaire can Bill brought in the man who designed the Nike campus and spent over fifty million to build a dream workspace, which included a state of the art, three hundred seat movie theater. He used his entertainment industry connections to lure out talent hailing from Disney, Pixar, and DreamWorks, the big three animation houses in America. He invested over one hundred and eighty million dollars into rebranding Will Vinton Studios into Leica. The name Leica was chosen after the first animal to orbit Earth after the Soviet sent her into space in 1957. Animator Mike Smith is credited with coming up with the name, with Travis Knight stating, There was something about it we liked, this aspirational quality, a mutt from humble origins that touched the stars. Here's an excerpt from a Wall Street Journal article about the company. Bob Harold, former chief financial officer at Nike, who left retirement to serve as Leica's interim chief executive, says the name, in Russia, means little barker. In other words, he says, to project a voice and be noticed. You could spin it that way. Will Vinton sadly died in 2018 at the age of 70, after a battle with multiple myeloma for over a decade. Touchstone Pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. From the imagination of Tim Burton comes The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what did Santa bring you, honey? One of the biggest early moves the new company made was bringing in Henry Selick to be part of the creative team. Selick is a legend in the stop-motion industry, and while true fans of the genre know who he is, in the mainstream, his work often gets miscredited. While A Nightmare Before Christmas originated with ideas Tim Burton had, most of the fleshing out of the story and the actual directing was done by Selleck. He also directed James and the Giant Peach and provided the unique sea creatures for Wes Anderson's A Life Aquatic. Phil Knight held an inter-office contest for Leica's employees to come up with an idea for a short film. Mike Berger, a CG modeler and winner of the contest, came up with an idea about A Little Girl Who Runs the Moon. Selleck was hired to write a script and to direct the film called Moon Girl. In the end, it was about a young boy who catches fireflies and is transported to the moon where he meets a girl who he helps bring light back to the moon with the help of his magical fireflies. The boy then becomes the new operator of the moon and is known as Moon Boy. While Wilvinton Studios was known for its stop motion animation, Moon Girl was computer generated as Leica was testing out a new format for them to work in. Travis Knight was the supervising animator. And the film was dedicated to his older brother Matthew Knight, who tragically died in 2004 at the age of 34 while scuba diving in El Salvador while on a film shoot for a charity. Fresh lightning bugs. Thanks. Leon. Uh, what you want to for? Don't worry, they'll be fine. Right now, we've got to go fix that crater you made. I'm Moon Girl. Moon Girl. After completing their first project, Laika was hired to assist with the animation on the Warner Brothers and Tim Burton-directed movie Corpse Bride. The film was shot in England, and Leica provided an unknown number of animators, including Travis Knight, who personally worked on the project. Perhaps not so coincidentally, Leica signed a deal with Warner to do contract work on the film the day after Will Vinton was fired, raising suspicions that the deal was agreed to beforehand but not finalized until after the regime change, much like the Iran hostage crisis in the late 1970s. The film was released in the fall of 2005 and grossed almost $120 million. It was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the 2006 Oscars, but interestingly, ended up losing to The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, the Ardman Studios' Wallace and Gromit stop-motion movie. They were due to be married, though they'd never before met. Ah! His parents were thrilled. Hers were filled with regret. (sighs) Oh! But in a moment of panic, Victor desperately fled. Ah! And by a grave misunderstanding, Luke. married the corpse bride instead. You may kiss the bride. Back in 2001, Will Vinton Studios produced a pilot for an adult-oriented stop-motion TV show called Slacker Cats. At the time, the pilot was rejected. Bose revisited, and in 2007, the first of two seasons aired on ABC Family. Film Roman did the actual animation for the show, but Leica produced it. Afterwards, Laika was hired to direct an animated dream sequence for the Mike Cahill-directed film, King of California. The movie stars Michael Douglas as a former mental hospital patient who returns home and uproots his teenage daughter's life. The company created a sequence using paper puppets to create a woodblock printing look as Michael Douglas's Charlie walks through a medieval Spain complete with torture. The movie was released in September 2007. As a young man, Torres was a mathematics scholar in Seville. In fact, it looks like he might have been sent to the new world because certain of his ideas were considered heretical. But that's not what's important. The thing that matters here is that he was more accustomed to communicating with numbers than words. Eventually, the company was finally able to focus their attention on their first feature-length film. Henry Selleck had the opportunity to meet with famed writer and graphic novelist Neil Gaiman, who is best known for his works that include Sandman, American Gods, Stardust, and more. Gaiman was a fan of Selleck's previous films, and he was completing his latest novel called Coraline. Neil invited the director to read through his work with the hope that he would be interested in making a movie adaptation. Looking at the story, he realized that while it was an excellent source material, it wouldn't be dense enough for a full-length feature film, possibly clocking in around the 45-minute mark. After Leica got the rights for the story, Selleck began expanding the world. The graphic novel tells the story of a young girl named Coraline who moves to a new town and struggles as her parents are workaholics. She meets her landlord's grandson named Wybie who finds a doll that looks identical to Coraline except it has buttons for eyes. This doll leads her to another dimension that seems similar to Coraline's except everyone has buttons for eyes. This other mother and father have all the time in the world for the little girl but things start to get dark when they refuse to let Coraline go. A Parallel Place We've been waiting for you, Coraline. Where parents are always fun. I love your garden! Can't believe you did this! And everything is so good. What's wow, shaking, baby? It just can't be real. Mom? You're just in time for supper, dear. You're not my mother. My mother doesn't have b but buttons? Do you like them? I'm your other mother, silly. The film took a staggering three years to film, but was a technical achievement, breaking new ground on what could be accomplished with stop-motion animation. Leica was able to take advantage of new technology to 3D print faces in order to swap out looks more easily. Travis Knight was made the lead animator and put in 16-hour workdays, working meticulously to ever so slightly move figures on tiny sets to take 24 photos for every one second of film. The film was a massive gamble for a new studio. The budget was around $70 million, and they needed the movie to be a hit in order for them to stay afloat. They had the Hollywood talent with Dakota Fanning cast as Coraline, Terry Hatcher and John Hodgman as mother and father, Ian McShane as a Russian neighbor who trains mice to be circus performers, and the British comedy duo Dawn and French as former burlesque performers who try to warn Coraline about potential dangers. The film was released in February 2009 and ended up making $16 million on its opening weekend and placing third at the box office. Over the course of its run, it ended up making a resounding $124 million worldwide. It was also a hit with critics. It sits at 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, with Roger Ebert giving it 3 out of 4 stars and wrote about it saying, This is nightmare fodder for children, however brave under a certain age. Selleck is as unconventional in his imagery as Gaiman is in his writing, and this is a movie for people who know and care about drawing, caricature, grotesquerie, and the far shores of storytelling. The movie ended up being nominated for Best Animated Feature at the 2010 Oscars, but unfortunately lost to the Pixar tearjerker Up. Later in 2009, it came time to negotiate a new contract for Henry Selleck, who had spent five years at Laika directing their only two films, a short and a feature but was also the supervising director for feature film development. Selleck was feeling frustrated at the lack of opportunities that were being presented to him, considering his stature both in the industry and inside the company. No deal was able to be reached, and around the same time that Selick exited the organization, the studio also let go their computer animation division to focus strictly on stop-motion animation moving forward. Since he left the company, he developed a TV show that hasn't aired yet, and directed a new key-and-peel stop-motion movie, Wendell and Wild, that is due to come out on Netflix in late 2022. Next up for the studio was a much smaller-scale project. The studio was hired to animate a short sequence for a live-action movie, just like they had done a few years earlier with King of California. New Line Cinema decided to produce a third installment in the popular stoner comedy series, Harold and Kumar, that stars John Cho and Cal Penn. The newest edition, directed by Todd Strauss-Schulason, was called A Very Harold and Kumar Christmas, and told the story about how the duo accidentally burned down a prize Christmas tree and they have to replace it. Hijinks ensue, and some Russian mobsters attempt to kill them. In the process, shooting a bag of cocaine, causing it to explode all over the place. Naturally, this gets Harold and Kumar incredibly high, which causes them to hallucinate themselves and the world around them as claymation while having a bad trip. This includes a killer snowman chasing them down the streets and a squirrel befriending them. This work was done by the Leica slash house wing of the company that normally was responsible for commercial work that they would be contracted to do. The film was released in November 2011. I think I was starting to trip out back there a little bit. Yeah, definitely, man. I think there was something in the eggnog. It's pretty fucking sweet. Anyway, don't worry. Pretty sure it's wearing off, though. Or maybe not. Holy shit, dude! You're claymated. <laughs> so are you. So is he. What's up, bud? Dude, everything's claymated. Rock ah, you. This is great. No, it's not. How am I supposed to get a tree now? I'm made of clay. Ooh, hold on. While in production for Coraline, Chris Butler, who was the film's storyboard supervisor and was part of the team that was contracted to work on Corpse Bride, wrote an original screenplay for the studio to produce. He always loved the idea of horror movies for children a genre that is rich in classics but poor in consistent output. Butler liked how zombie films were specifically able to be morphed to whichever social commentary an author wanted. He came up with the concept for Paranorman, which tells the strange story of Norman Babcock, an 11-year-old boy with special gifts. Norman has the ability to see ghosts. This ostracizes him from his family and causes him to be bullied at school because no one believes him. As his uncle is dying, he tells him about a terrible curse that is about to fall on the town, Norman is unable to rectify the curse in time, and a horde of zombies rise and terrorize the townsfolk. Norman and his best friend Neil, another kid who is bullied, must figure out the root of the curse. This leads him to realize the zombies, who are former townspeople of Blythe Hollow, who once convicted a young girl named Aggie, who is Norman's age, of witchcraft, as they held their own version of the Salem Witch Trials. Aggie has come back to get her revenge, but Norman is able to get through to her and show compassion before she destroys the entire town and everyone in it. The film has nice nods to horror movies that came before it. The title is a play on the term paranormal, while the town's name, Blythe Hollow, is a mashup of two references. Blythe Spirit was a famous play by Noel Coward about a man who is able to see his dead former wife after a seance. The second part of the town's name comes from the legend of Sleepy Hollow a book about a headless horseman by Washington Irvine. Both book and play have been adapted for film over the years. Another notable reference point is that one of the zombies is named Judge Hopkins, who is responsible for condemning Little Aggie. Judge Matthew Hopkins was a character in the Edgar Allan Poe story The Conqueror Worm, which was made into a film called The Witchfinder General, with Vincent Price portraying the sadistic witch hunter Hopkins. Witchfinder General was discussed on episode 171, The Unholy Trinity of Folklore." The film was unique as it advanced the technique of using 3D printers. Coraline was the first movie to use the new process to help speed up the creation of faces, but they only came out in black and white, meaning every face still needed to be hand-painted. For Paranorman, color 3D printers were now available to the team. All the sets, costumes, and props were still handmade by artisans, but this allowed for greater freedom to create more facial expressions for the characters meet norman can't you be like other kids your age his parents don't get him he's probably up there fiddling with his ouija or his orb harry his sister doesn't like him (laughs) you are such a loser and the kids at school look it's ab norman always pick on him (laughs) but he does have some friends norman wait up i like to be alone so do i Let's do it together. It's just that most of them... Good morning! ...aren't exactly alive. How's it hanging? <laughs> Haven't heard that one before. Do you see ghosts, like, all the time? <gasps> Who's a good boy? Uh, that's not his chin. The film was released on August 2012 and ended up earning $107 million worldwide, a decent sum, but one that Travis Knight thought was an underperformance given how well-received the movie was. Film critic Rachel Wagner wrote... My favorite part about this movie, aside from the animation, is the message, that even if we feel justified in our anger, if we allow hate to take over our lives, then we become what we hate. The movie featured the voice cast of Cody Smith-McPhee as Norman, Jodell Furland as Aggie, Anna Kendrick as Norman's sister Courtney, Tucker Albarizzi as Neil, Casey Affleck as Neil's brother Mitch, and with supporting work from Leslie Mann, Christopher Mintz-Plasse, John Goodman, Elaine Stritch, and more. The movie, once again, secured Laika with an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Feature, which, despite the very strong crop of nominees, including fellow horror spoof Frankenweenie directed by Tim Burton, Paranorman lost to the Pixar film Brave. Probably the most notable aspect of the film, an enduring legacy, was the fact that Paranorman depicted the first openly gay character in a mainstream animated film. Neil's older brother Mitch is seen being lusted after by Courtney, who is a cheerleader and likes that he is a jock. Near the end of the film, Mitch reveals that he isn't interested in Courtney at all, as he has a boyfriend. In an interview with the film Strip, co-director and screenwriter Chris Butler stated in regards to having an openly gay character that It seemed important that we be brave about it. If we're saying to anyone that watches this movie, don't judge other people, then we've got to have the strength of our convictions. The film became the first PG-rated movie to be nominated for Glad Media's Award for Outstanding Film. Unfortunately, losing to the perks of being a wallflower. So I was thinking maybe we could catch a movie sometime. nothing scary. That sounds great, Kathy. You know, you're going to love my boyfriend. He's like a total chick flick nut. Going back in time a little bit, in June of 2008, Leica put out a release of what they envisioned their future projects to be. During this announcement, three ideas they were strongly considering were brought up, with a few others they had in mind. Of this trio of projects, there was Paranorman, which we just talked about. Another one was Jack and Ben, which was supposed to be the studio's first CG animated film about two birds who race each other along the north-south migration path. It was to be directed by Barry Cook, who most notably directed Disney's animated version of Mulan. Unfortunately, later that year, the project was canned as it wasn't working for the studio. The last of the three ideas was an adaptation of the book, Here Be Monsters, a 500-page children's fantasy picture book that takes place during the Georgian era of England. This tome becomes the basis for what would eventually be titled The Box Trolls, Leica's third film. Obviously, 500 pages is far too long to translate into a script, but provided a solid foundation. Screenwriters Irina Brignall and Adam Pava focus on the box troll portion of the book. The setting was changed to Victorian-era England and follows Eggs, a young boy who lives with the box trolls a species that live underground and in secret. They scavenge at night to build themselves machinery. On the surface, society is ruled by the White Hats, a group of cheese-obsessed rich people who despise the box trolls. Lord Charles Portly Rhyne hires Snatcher to kill all the box trolls. During Snatcher's process of kidnapping the creatures, Lord Portly Rhind's daughter Winnie sees eggs trying to save his family, and she agrees to help them. At a ball to celebrate buying a giant wheel of cheese called Brehemoth, Eggs reveals himself as the child thought to have been killed by the box trolls years earlier and pleads to save the rest of the creatures. After outing Snatcher as someone lying to the community in order to raise his status, the box trolls and humans eventually come to a peace agreement to live together in harmony. The film was released in September 2014, which was directed by Graham, Annable and Anthony Stacchi, and set the record for the best opening weekend by a Leica film, but overall received mixed reviews from critics. Alonzo Derald, writing for The Wrap, said, a surprisingly charmless and aimless movie from Laika Studios, who previously crafted the wonderfully dark Coraline and Paranorman. This latest venture seems destined to disturb young viewers while thoroughly boring their parents. The movie eventually ended up making $109 million worldwide, a slight increase on Paranorman, but falling well short of Coraline's highs. The movie featured the voice talents of Isaac Hampstead Wright as Eggs, Elle Fanning as Winnie, Ben Kingsley as Snatcher, and Tony Collette and Jared Harris as the Portly Rinds. Also appearing was Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Richard Ayoade, and Tracy Morgan. Yet again the movie was nominated for an Oscar, this time losing out to Disney's Big Hero 6. The company did, however, win a Scientific and Engineering Award from the Oscars that was awarded to Brian McLean and Martin Meunier for their work on rapid prototyping. The Academy described the reason for this award as... Through highly specialized pipelines and techniques, 3D printing capabilities have been harnessed with color uniformity, mechanical repeatability, and the scale required to significantly enhance stop-motion animated feature films, all of which boil down to the inventive way Leica harnessed 3D printing to allow the ability to easily create hundreds of facial expressions that could be swapped out on puppets to speed up the process of animating and allow more motions to be conveyed. In the town of Cheesebridge, when all good citizens are safe inside, beastly creatures roam the night. Box trolls! Box trolls are monsters! At least, that's what everyone's been told. Welcome to the magical world of the Box trolls, where one lucky boy lives happily with his unusual family. In mid-2014, Leica made an adjustment to the way their company was structured. Before, they were divided into two parts. The main studio, which made movies, and their advertising branch, which was known as Leica slash house. This wing of the company worked on commercials or were contracted out to other studios, like in the case of A Very Harold and Kumar Christmas. Leica decided they wanted to solely focus on feature film development and as such allowed the commercial wing to be their own company. Some of these employees of this sector have been around since the Will Vinton studio days when they predominantly worked on advertising. The company changed its name to House Special. The company has worked on such campaigns as M&M's, Honey Nut Cheerios, Apple, and more. Ow! All right, guys, come on. Get hey. your foot out! get it out! Get your foot, get your foot off of him. Quit it! Hey, watch it. Hey, stop! Ow! Cut it out! I'm not doing anything! Ow, oh, quit! Okay, do I have to break you guys apart? He started it! Stop it! You right. stop it! Stop it! Guys, come on. Stop You're touching me! me. <laughs> okay, that's it! If you don't stop, I will eat all of you alive right now! After the release of Box Trolls, Leica's three-picture deal with Focus Features to distribute their movies came to a close. Luckily, the partnership was deemed fruitful enough for both sides, so they renegotiated a deal for Focus to domestically distribute the following three movies, with Universal Pictures International handling the international rights. This allowed the studio a chance to keep taking risks and making original content knowing an audience would see it. While this was exciting news for fans of the studio, inside there was another storm brewing. Shannon Tyndall was a character designer on Coraline, but also had a long resume of working on other high-profile projects, including The Fairly Odd Parents, Samurai Jack, Megamind, The Crude's*, and more. Back in 2001, Shannon came up with an idea for a one-eyed samurai who uses magical art to help his sick mother. It was based on his new mother-in-law who was suffering from dementia, a disease that affected the little samurai's mother too. Tyndall was a fan of Japanese artwork and used that to influence his design of the characters and narrative structure. At the time, Shannon was no longer an employee of Leica, but he thought of them as a studio that potentially might be interested in his ideas. The pitch was successful and Leica agreed to help flesh the idea out. Mark Hames, who mostly worked behind the scenes when there were script issues on big budget movies, was brought in to help co-write the script with Shannon. An animatic was made showing what the film would look like, that featured rough animations, temp music, and placement actors. This extremely unique vision for a story and beautiful pitch convinced Laika to move full steam ahead, greenlighting the project to be fully developed. If you must blink, do it now. careful attention to everything you see and hear, no matter how unusual it may seem. All this information is posted by Shannon Tyndall on a Twitter thread from April 29th, 2022. He states that when the project was greenlit, he was also hired to be a director alongside John Aoshima, except that after delivering the template animatic and then proceeding to direct the film's animation portion, he got the rug pulled out from under him. When Shannon was preparing to direct the new voice cast, a cast that included Charlie Stern, Matthew McConaughey, Ray Fiennes, George Takei, Art Parkinson, and Rooney Mara, he was told that he was no longer the director and was let go from the project. It was at this time that Travis Knight was appointed director, the first project he would be helming. It is unknown what Knight's role would be prior to, assuming the director's chair, but considering how hands-on he was with the animation process of the studio's first three films, it would not be surprising to learn that he was very involved with the shoot. In an interview with Wired, Travis Knight said this about his work as a director: "The original idea came from our product designer, Shannon Tyndall. He originally pitched the project to me as this stop-motion samurai epic. I was really intrigued. On the one hand, I'd been a huge fan of epic fantasy for my entire life, which is something I got from my mom, who is an enormous fan. Also." When I was about eight years old, my dad let me tag along with him on a business trip to Japan, and from the moment I set foot in Japan, it was like I'd be transported to another world. I was really changed by the experience. The film is effectively a convergence of these two things. It's a love of fantasy that I got from my mom. It's a love of the transcendent art of Japan that I got from my dad, all bound together that became about the sustaining love of a family. He also stated, It was exhausting. You become the nexus of every key artistic and creative technical decision. I knew this was going to be a really challenging movie, but it was by far the hardest thing we'd ever done. It really tested every single department and pushed them into new and uncomfortable areas. It is unclear based on Shannon Tyndall's words if he directed the entire movie, save for the voiceover work, or if there is still work to be done. Regardless, it doesn't appear as if Laika or Travis Knight have acknowledged what they did or how it all went down obviously making themselves look like the bad guys in all of this. Shannon was credited as a story co-creator alongside Mark Himes, who he himself was given a written-by credit that he shared with Chris Butler. John Aoshima was credited as head of story, and news about him being removed as co-director is limited to Shannon's words only. The film was released in August of 2016 and was animated in the style of Japanese woodblock paintings combined with origami. The movie's climactic sequence involves a giant skeleton attacking Kubo. The studio built a 16-foot-tall puppet that weighed around 400 pounds. It was held together by magnets, and a custom robot needed to be built to control its movements. Like it claims, is the largest stop-motion puppet ever built. The film earned the studio its best reviews yet, both on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, with the Boston Globe writing, The movie is genuinely creative, genuinely outside-the-box, and often genuinely scary. Parents of toddlers and nightmare-prone children are herewith warned. Everyone else, go without reservations. Kubo! Can you hear me, Kubo? Your village is burned to the ground. Your enemies aren't far behind. We need to go now. You have questions I can tell. Who? You get three. Why only three? Okay, that was your first question. What? I don't understand what's happening. This is the, the beginning, beginning of your story. The film ended up earning just $77 million, by far the lowest total Leica had earned so far, and barely making back its $60 million budget. Unfortunately, it wasn't just a poor box office that Leica had to contend with, but criticisms of whitewashing the cast. As noted earlier, the film included Charlize Theron, Matthew McConaughey, Ray Fiennes, Art Parkinson, and Rooney Mara. The film takes place in ancient Japan, and all the actors portray Japanese people. Complex's Mikkel Street had the chance to visit the studio during production and spoke with Travis Knight about the casting. Knight said, There's kind of a cultural debate happening right now that's happening around diversity. We saw it at the Oscars this year, and it's interesting how it gets framed in a very binary way. Recently, it's literally been framed as black and white. I think that the way we look at it is, diversity is the accumulation of the seen and unseen characteristics that we go through. There's a lot of different things. Race, gender, age. Those are things we see. But there are the things we don't see, like faith, and worldview, and gender identity. Knight then tried to claim that because most of the characters aren't human, but instead a monkey, beetle, and a skeleton, they wanted the best actors, period, regardless of race. That they had cast actors like George Takei and Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa, among others, to play the Japanese villagers, they had done their due diligence. It's a bit of a cop-out since, yes, Charlize Theron plays a monkey, but you also see her as Kubo's mother, who is Japanese. And yes, Matthew McConaughey plays a Beatle, but he is Kubo's father too. But Art Parkinson and Rooney Mara only show up as their one character, who both happen to be Japanese, and neither are of Asian descent. Mikkel Street notes back in 1998, Disney had the foresight to cast actors like Ming-Na Wen, Sandra Oh, and B.D. Wong in their adaptation of Mulan before broader audiences cared about authenticity in playing different races. Despite what could have been a disaster by firing the original directors and replacing them with the owner's son, and a pretty poor showing at the box office, Kubo and the Two Strings still managed to land two Oscar nominations. For the fourth time in a row, they secured a Best Animated Feature nod, which was unfortunately lost to Zootopia, but they also got a Best Visual Effects nomination, a feat only achieved by two other animated films, Henry Selick's A Nightmare Before Christmas and 2019's The Lion King remake. Unfortunately, Kubo also lost this second category to another Disney remake, The Jungle Book. And these are the nominees for Best Animated Feature Film. Kubo and the Two Strings Travis Knight and Ariane Suttner Moana John Musker, Ron Clements and Osnat Schurer My Life as a Zucchini Claude Barras and Max Carney The Red Turtle Michael dudok Wit, and Toshio Suzuki Zootopia. Byron Howard, Rich Moore, and Clark Spencer. And the Oscar goes to... Zootopia. Byron Howard, Rich Moore, and Clark Spencer. To follow up Kubo and the Two Strings, Laika decided to try something new. This was making a movie consisting of only adult characters. For the studio's first four films, all the main protagonists were children. There is something to the curious nature that children have, allowing filmmakers to express a sense of wonder in their stories. Chris Butler, who wrote and directed Paranorman, had a new idea for a film that involved him moving away from horror. Butler was a fan of Indiana Jones and Sherlock Holmes and wanted to pay homage to both franchises, and coming up with an adventure and mystery story revolving around Bigfoot was his answer. The film tells the story of an explorer named Sir Lionel Frost, voiced by Hugh Jackman who's trying to get into the stuffy Society of Great Men, in which in order to be invited, you need to discover something great and be a man, an organization that has utter disdain for his refusal to accept the status quo. He gets a letter about a sighting of Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest. Upon arriving on the West Coast, he finds that the letter writer was Sasquatch himself, who actually wants Frost's help in reuniting him with his family members, the Yetis of the Himalayas. The Sasquatch, who's given the name Mr. Link, voiced by Zach Galifianakis, as a way to conceal his identity, begins his adventure to find his long-lost family. Unfortunately, the Society of Great Men's Leader has hired a hitman to kill Frost, ensure that he doesn't disrupt the scientific community. Along the way, both Frost and Link learn that sometimes family isn't who you are born into, but who cares for you the most. The voice cast also included Timothy Oliphant as the hitman on their trail, Zoe Saldana as the wife of Frost's deceased former partner and fellow explorer, Stephen Fry as the leader of the Society of Great Men, and Emma Thompson as the leader of the Yetis. The movie was released in April 2019 and was like biggest production to date, with a budget exceeding $100 million for the first time after the previous four films cost around $60 million apiece. Unfortunately, it was also the worst performing film of the five, earning only a paltry $26 million total, a box office disaster. On the brighter side, the reviews were once again glowing for the film. Kathleen Sachs from the Chicago Reader wrote The film is sophisticated and a revisionist take on the adventure genre, including social and ecological concerns into the mix, though its irreverent humor is still accessible to children. The film, for a fifth straight time, netted the studio a Best Animated Film Oscar nomination, losing to Pixar for the third time as Toy Story 4 won the prize. The studio is still on the hunt for its elusive first Oscar win in a category, but is in tough with Disney and Pixar having locked up 15 of the 21 total statues as they dominate the field. Legend tells of a lost species, a link between man and beast. For centuries, he's lived in hiding, but at long last, he's reaching out and ready to to be found. <coughs> it's still there. <coughs> Excuse me. Hi. You can speak. Yes, and um, I write as well. My I- penmanship isn't great, but, uh, you know, opposable thumbs and fat fingers, you know. <laughs> this was a look back at the founding and history of Leica Studios, as well as the five feature films they have released so far. But our episode doesn't end here, as we're going to look into the future to see what else we can expect from the company. Back in 2011, Colin Malloy, the lead singer of the indie rock band The Decemberists, published a novel that featured illustrations from his wife, Carson Ellis, called Wildwood. Not one week after it came out, did Lyca come calling to option the book for a movie. It is the first book in a trilogy centered around Prue McNeil, a young lady who must confront a world filled with magic and danger after her younger brother is kidnapped, forcing her to enter the impassable wilderness. The novel eventually had two follow-ups come out, Under Wildwood and Wildwood Imperium. In the past, Laika has balked at the idea of doing sequels, but since the books were a planned trilogy, they have remained open to the idea of adapting all three of them. The movie is being directed by Travis Knight, as his follow-up to Kubo and the Two Strings is written by the studio's second biggest creative force, Chris Butler. Production began during the same time that Kubo was being shot, but at this time, there isn't a release date or announced cast yet. Along with optioning the movie, Laika was also commissioned to create a trailer for the book release. Dad, what's the IW? It stands for Impassable Wilderness. Why doesn't anyone live there? When the settlers first came to the area, no one wanted to build their houses there. The forest was too deep and the hills were too steep. The place over time just became more overgrown and more inhospitable and so it was named the impassable wilderness and everybody knew to steer clear and i don't ever ever want you to go in there you hear me kid yeah i hear you i'm serious In 2012, news came out that Leica was working on adapting Philip Reeve's book, Goblins, and would be directed by Mark Gustafson, who also works as a director at House Special, the former advertising arm of Leica. Word of what is happening with this project has seemed to have floated away, as there has been no new update since 2012, it is safe to assume that the project is likely dead in the water. Another project in production is The Night Gardener, which was from an original script from Bill Dubuque, the co-creator of the Netflix series Ozark. Travis Knight is set to direct the project that is a gritty neo-noir folktale centered on a young man in rural Missouri who's fighting to keep his family together in the wake of a tragedy. The project was only announced in 2022, so it'll likely be several years before it comes out. The last project announced so far will drastically change the way the company operates. Leica secured the rights to screenwriter John Brownlow's debut novel 17. What makes this different is that it will be a's first live-action film. The plot description is written in the first person and states, Behind the events, you know are the killers you don't. When diplomacy fails, we're the ones who gear up. Officially, we don't exist. But every government in the world uses our services. We've been saving the world, and your ass, for 100 years. 16 people have done this job before me. I am 17. The most feared assassin in the world. But to be the best, you must beat the best. My next target is 16. Just as one day, 18 will hunt me down. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and it gets lonely at the top. Nobody gets to stay for long, but while we're here, all that matters is that we win. While no director for this project has been announced, it isn't shocking considering that after Travis Knight directed Kubo, he went on to direct his own first live-action film, The Transformers' origin story Bumblebee, that was released in 2018. Bumblebee was the best-received film in the Transformers series, earning a 90% positive score on Rotten Tomatoes, with the other five films in the franchise scoring between a sloppy 15% and a mediocre high of 58%. Knight is also in pre-production for directing a remake of The Six Million Dollar Man, starring Mark Wahlberg, outside of Leica. Oh my god, what are you? So you have no idea where he came from? No idea. No. Well. Here's the deal. People can be terrible about things they don't understand. From now on, the only person you can show yourself around is me. Oh, I'm I'm good. Now I'm good, thanks. In 2021, it was announced that the boutique home movie label, Shout Factory, would be re-releasing special editions of Leica's first four films, which included new beautiful cover art, new special features, and remastered editions of the films. Unfortunately, at this time, Leica is unable to partner with Shout for the release of their fifth film, The Missing Link. The first four movies were distributed by Focus Features, and the rights were eventually returned to the filmmakers, who were free to sign new distribution deals. The Missing Link, on the other hand, had rights handled by Annapurna Pictures, which at this time still own them and have released their own home video version of the film. If you must blink, do it now. Now available on Blu-ray plus DVD Combos. New collectible editions of four groundbreaking and critically acclaimed films from visionary studio Laika. Tell me everything! Coraline. We've been waiting for you, Coraline. For me. You could stay here forever if you want to. The Box Trolls. I'm a box troll. Let's see you fit in your box. (laughs) Paranorman. Norman. Can you see ghosts like... Everywhere, all the time? Can't you be like other kids your age? And Kubo and the Two Strings. Pay careful attention to everything you see, no matter how unusual it may seem. This is real. This is not a story. As I have done in the past with other A History of episodes, I created a survey for fans of Leica Studios to hear their thoughts on the company. I asked four questions and got some great feedback. The first question asked was, how do you rank the five films? There is an option to say you hadn't seen the film as well. It's no shock that Coraline got the most first and second place votes, showing up on 77% of ballots in those two spots. Coraline easily was voters' favorite, but after that, it was a toss-up between Paranorman and Kubo in the two strings for second and third favorite, as 55% of people put Paranorman in the top two slots, and 52% did the same for Kubo. Both the box trolls and the missing Link similarly received most of the bottom two votes, making a clear distinction from what people perceive as the best Leica films, and what ones don't work as well. As far as what movies people hadn't seen, once again, people either didn't like it or completely skipped The Box Trolls and The Missing Link, with the two movies getting 68% of the didn't see vote. The next question was to find out what was everyone's introduction to Laika, and a whopping 86% of people have either been there from the start or at the very least started with the first film, Coraline. Kubo came in second place with a distant 5% of votes, which tells you all you need to know. I want to know why people gravitate towards Leica's movie and got lots of fantastic answers. A lot of the answers were similar using terms like the aesthetic, artistry, attention to detail, and uniqueness were common refrains. Some interesting answers included the contrast of darker characters and settings with positive themes, and creates a new lane in animation that no one else is striving for. The last question I asked was, when you hear a new Leica film is coming out, what are your thoughts or expectations? Here were some really interesting answers, some highlighting their history of great work keeps them coming back, while others have noticed a bit of dip with recent films and are more trepidatious. Replies range from, It will be high art and one of the best animated films of the year, and Originality and attention to detail, to My expectations are high. I want them to be like Coraline or Paranorman, so I go in hopeful. I did try watching The Missing Link and couldn't make it through the first 45 minutes. And I'm cautiously optimistic. Thanks to everyone who submitted answers for this questionnaire. This wraps up our latest edition of A History Of. I hope you enjoyed this episode, as it was a long and complicated process to ensure I could pack in as much information as possible while still being entertaining. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Do you have any ideas for what subject matter you'd like to see me tackle next after previously covering A24, Criterion, and Neon? Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music, and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out.